Welcome to the MedFaber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Matt Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. What's up, everybody? We've got a great show today. Our guest is the founder and CEO of Altruist, an all-in-one financial advisor platform. In today's episode, we're talking with one of the most successful fintech startups around. Our guest is building an alternative to existing custodians with a mission to make independent financial advice better, more affordable, and more accessible. We get into some of the benefits to advisors and how they align their fee structure to benefit advisor and their clients. We get into the future of financial advice. We touch on fees, mutual funds, ETFs, direct indexing, and some of these structural issues embedded within the financial services industry. This episode is brought to you by 10 East. Longtime listeners know I've invested in private markets quite a bit myself, but with access to these markets broadening, it can be hard to know where to find vetted high quality offerings. That's where 10 East comes in. 10 East is a platform where qualified investors can co-invest on a deal by deal basis across private equity, private credit, real estate, venture, and other one-off opportunities typically unavailable through traditional channels. They're founded and led by Michael LaFell who spent his early career building Davidson Kempner and who invests material personal capital in every offering they bring to the platform, aligning interests with 10 East members who co-invest at their discretion. Join numerous founders, executives, and portfolio managers from leading investment firms who use 10 East to diversify their personal portfolios. Inquire for membership at 10east.co. That's the number 10east.co. Please enjoy this episode with Altruists, Jason Wake. Jason, welcome to the show. Hey, man. A pleasure to join you, Matt. This is super cliche. Long time listener. I'm not finding it to be on your show, so I'm stoked. Yeah, well, I've been harassing you long enough to get you on. <laughs> the last time I saw you in person was either on a rooftop in Venice or in an attic in Venice, which used to be your office. Still is your office, but it seems like you guys are moving. Which one was it? I don't know. Well, there was like a, isn't there like a crusty Mexican restaurant in Manhattan Beach? I think we had some beers there once too. Oh, okay. All these in the real world events kind of meld together pre-pandemic. I'm out and ready to get out in the world. You're applying a, a barbell approach. Mazel tov. Congrats, man. You got a, a new one. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Winter Rye Wank joined the crew October 18. So yeah, we're, we're super stoked to have a new one to the family. And then my my oldest turned 21 October 13. So yeah, did barbell accurately describe. Your oldest now old enough to have a drink. Your youngest name sounds like a cocktail. You could have a tasting room <laughs> or Jelena. We could go uh, order that. It sounds like perfect fall, like a sort of smoky cocktail. I like yeah, it. Yeah, you know, there's a, there's a lots of stories that have to do with his name, but it's a grass, it's a wheat, it can be turned into alcohol. There's all sorts of things. It's actually the same grass that Augusta National uses when they play the Masters every year. So I didn't even know that. Someone's like, oh man, did you name him after the Masters? I'm like, no, what are you talking about? Yeah. It's like, oh yeah, they, the, whole, the whole Augusta National golf course. I'm like, yeah, that had nothing to do with this whatsoever, but we'll make that a true story if he becomes a, a great golfer one day. Perfect. I'm heading out to our farmland this coming weekend. We'll still see what the results of our wheat harvest were. Speaking of grains, so kudos to you, although maybe you're just using this as an escape to be like, dude, I need some sleep. I need to go hide. I'm going to do a five-hour <laughs> podcast with Meb so I can take a nap. And I did one podcast once 
from the hospital when I had my kid for that reason alone. I'm like, I got to do some work. Yeah, dude, you're way more bold than I am. I think my wife would have come out of her painkiller-induced coma and actually strangled me. Yeah, well, <laughs> feel free to use me excuse for as long as you uh, feel necessary. Oh, by the way, another thing I forgot to tell you, you are a Michigan native, right? Yeah, yeah man. Born and raised. I'm heading to Detroit for the first time ever next week. So I'm going to have to hit you up for some travel agent guides. Absolutely, man. A shout out for you and every listener you have. Foundation Hotel in downtown Detroit. It's awesome. Old fire department converted. It's killer bar, good vibes, good location. So if you don't already have something booked, go to the foundation. Did I hear you say you, were, uh, you grew up kind of in farm country or in the, in the burbs or what? No, farm is the west side of the state. So I was like two and a half hours west of Detroit. Population of my town was about 110, 120 people. Extremely rural, all farms as far as you could see. I like to tell the story that my first job, I, I shoveled manure at a dairy farm. It was about a mile away from my house. And, and uh, there was a goalie in between my house. And so I had to walk uphill both ways in the snow to shovel <laughs> cow shit for a living. <laughs> Is this like Grand Rapids, Kalamazoo? Yeah, like northwest of Grand Rapids. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, for those who not know that area. All right. I was in Grand Rapids pre-pandemic. Great beer scene, by the way, up there. All right. Well, let's talk about something relevant. You've kind of done a lot of things in the advisory, financial services, investment management world. We may come back to this later. I want to spend the majority of time talking about what you're up to now. But before I lead in, how many financial advisors do you think you've talked to in your life? Oof, that's a lot. I mean, multiple thousands for sure. Okay. Tell us what Altruist is. Give us kind of the broad overview, and then we can start to riff on a few different topics that I think are timely and confusing and instructive for not just me, but everyone. So what are you guys up to over there besides holding former bluegrass concerts in your office space was last time I was there. <laughs> it's a cool space. I mean, we may have to take it over. You're getting ready, getting rid of it. We may have to swoop in. We've outgrown it. It might be available next spring, and it is one of the coolest spots in Venice, California, so for sure. But Altruist is a custodian for independent financial advisors. Unlike other custodians, an entirely digital custodian. So it has all of the tools that a financial advisor would need to give their client a really delightful, fully digital, modern experience. And there's all sorts of like back office tools kind of just seamlessly integrated into the platform. And we do it all with a high degree of automation and modern technology architecture, which allows us to drop the cost. Typically, most people, it's like 80 to 90% cheaper than any other sort of combination of solutions that they have to do all sort of disintermediated today. And ours is this one seamless, vertically integrated solution at a super low cost and very easy to use. So it's been a, about three years since I started the company. And today, there's about 180 people on the team building this every day. It's been, been a, ton, a ton of fun. What does everybody do, man? That's a lot of people. <laughs> you just trying to burn some VC money or what? I find with financial technology, it's very interesting. Financial advisors, as they think about it, like most of the tools built for advisors are, are pretty terrible. They're, I would call them almost not real technology. They're like homespun ideas and they like their nephew who studied computer science at the local state college to wrangle up a couple of buddies and spin up like a basically a macroed out Excel spreadsheet or something and they call it software, you know, and but building really big, meaningful infrastructure, it takes a lot of people. And specifically for any of the tech nerds that might kind of be faithful listeners. So I'm sure you have a huge following of JavaScript engineers or something for the show. But 
it's real. It's a lot of infrastructure that you have to build for something like trading stocks. It's not quite as simple. And I should clarify too, you know, there's all these consumer apps. I think most people think of like fintech, they think of like this consumer stuff you download on your phone and you can transfer money or buy and sell stocks or crypto or whatever. And we have to keep in mind that that's a really simple product in a lot of respects because almost all of them only support individual accounts, right? If I go to Coinbase, I'm just opening an account for myself. It's a single user account. There's no like persona management. It's very straightforward. I'm trading one security type. It's very, very straightforward, right? When you build a tool for a financial advisor, you've got the financial advisor, their staff, their customers, you've got 40 different account types. You have to support every single type of security. So it's a far more complex product to build, but the ability to impact people like on a much bigger scale is also a lot higher. So it's very much worth it. So that's where all those people are doing. We're building really hard to build complicated financial technology. What was the origin story? Basically, just like you looked around, you're like the state of affairs, the current offerings, just they suck. Was that kind of the takeaway? And I remember like, so when we first started Cambria, I remember we used to have to fax our trades in. And by the way, users, I'm not that old. This was in like 2009 or 10. Our custodians like, you can't email or upload these online. You have to fax them in. I was like, what are you talking about? Like, how is that even still a thing? And I remember going through some of the old custodians. And even recently, by the way, some of the legacy, I was looking at one's newest kind of offering. And I was like, how is this that bad? Like, how, like, like, and I know why, because it's like, any listener walk out to your garage and be like, why do I have all this shit? Well, it's because years of years of accumulation and fixing it versus starting anew. I think I already answered your question for you, but was it basically you just like <laughs> looked around and said, I can't take this anymore. This sucks. We have to do it. If I wanted to put it real succinctly, I'd have said it exactly like that. I've been in the space a little bit longer than you have. So I started in the industry in, in uh, right around year 2000. So I am old, I guess. But what I would say is that I kept sitting around waiting for someone to fix it. All those problems that you experienced in 2000, it was called 9, 10, 11. They were there in 2000. And I thought, well, someone will fix it eventually. You know? And then 2010, someone will fix it eventually. 2015, by then, you know, we had tools like Robinhood. And then it was like getting offensive, right? I was like, like how the hell is it possible that an 18-year-old can open an account, put money in it, and buy like $10 worth of Tesla, you know, fractional shares on their phone in minutes... But if a financial advisor, if they went to an advisor, first of all, finding an advisor is hard. But let's just say they could find an advisor. Like the advisor to try to do that for them would be like reams of paperwork. Back then, maybe they had like DocuSign, but probably not. You know, still probably like physical paperwork and physical checks. And like it would take three weeks. That's crazy. You know? So eventually, that offensive reception to consumer based fintech, it's like, why is it that advisors are getting no innovation? I mean, it's a it's a really painful experience to open an account, fund an account, trade an account, build an account. Like all these things were fragmented solutions. And so it was like you hit a point where you go, someone has to do it, might as well be me. So that was the genesis. The bigger picture story too, I, I should just add is that I am really passionate about the value that a personal financial planner, a personal financial advisor can bring. And I think the other thing that bothered me was when I started in this industry, if an advisor was pretty successful, they might say, hey, I've got a $100,000 account minimum because I'm pretty successful and so much demand, right? I have to have a high minimum to filter out the surplus demand and make sure that I, I don't get an out of control size client base. 
And then that number became like 250, then 500,000, then a million. It's super common now for the best advisors to have a million or 5 million or even more, you know, sort of as their minimum for a new client. So we've had 20 years of the best advisors becoming more and more exclusive versus more and more inclusive. It seemed to me that a big part of that actually is there's a lot of limiting factors for financial advisors. It's hard for them to serve people. It's hard to serve people at scale. And a big part of that was this infrastructure was just brutally bad and needed some massive overall innovation. So partly born out of personal frustration, partly born out of the righteousness of people need access to advisors. And there's very little incentive for the incumbents to try to make accessibility a real thing. They like the minimums being high and things to be clunky and shitty and expensive. And that's not good. Right. So it's funny because like I remember the first time sitting down and there's four or five of these in the early days, but Betterment was a good example on the direct-to-consumer and just doing the onboarding, which took like literally one minute and being like, huh, that's interesting. This is very clearly a vastly better experience. And then you go log into whatever Fidelity's Wealth Center and ask them about even doing digital onboarding. And they're like, it's coming, you know, next year's rollout, which was like seven years going. I... Fidelity. I'm sorry. I haven't looked in a long time. And so, you know, you had this sort of retail world pass by the advisor world, which is odd because there's a lot of AUM in the advisor world. All right. So what happened? Did you take out a white piece of paper, grab a couple of friends and say, all right, let's sketch out what this should look like? Did you already have an idea in your head? And, and what was the, like on the timeline, what year was this when you guys started to go from brainstorm to reality? So my last company, I founded a company before Altruist is called Formula Folios. And it's it's sort of a, you know, I'd call it like a tech-enabled asset manager for financial advisors. So I spent from 2011 to 2018 building that company. And I made the mistake of thinking, hey, I'll build a bunch of kind of front-end technology to take care of some of these friction points for advisors. So we'll make it easy for them to board new clients, really seamless. Let's make it fully digital. But the mistake was I thought I could nest it on top of like the existing advisor custodians. So you mentioned Fidelity, right? Schwab, TD Ameritrade, the usual suspects. And there was like workarounds. You could kind of sort of make it work, but it was not pleasant. It was not scalable. And, and interestingly, the business did really well. So we scaled up. We were, we were adding hundreds of millions of dollars in new assets every month. I feel like this is every advisor who uses interactive brokers has this exact same sort of takeaway. They're like, I had to have cobbled together whatever software front end because it's like an impossible interface. It's tough. And, you know, and I had a pretty big team. People like, my, like I, you know, I was an engineer myself you know, before getting into financial space. And I had a 110-person team you know, at my last company. So it wasn't like it was like this small endeavor, like a couple of dudes hanging out in the garage, you know? pounding the keys of the keyboard, like buildings, like we had a, a real team with significant dollars going into development. But you, you know, you can only go so far, you know, it's like, you know, you put like a rocket engine on like a Ford Taurus or something, it's still a Ford Taurus. That's basically what we're doing is we built all this sort of augmented tools and the base layer, again, I call it the infrastructure layer of the industry, which is the custodians. I mean, just they were not designed to support it. There's a couple like modern custodial solutions. I did an integration with one called Apex that a lot of people are familiar with. It was okay, but the challenge with Apex, again, great, great group of people, love Bill and his team dearly, but they're mostly infrastructure for consumer apps, right? Like their core customer is going to be like Robinhood was built on that and Betterment was built on that and PayPal's, you know, trading was built. Like these are their core customers. So going B to B to C was not definitely not in their DNA. And it's like, you're still pounding a lot of square pegs and round holes. So 
the idea to start my own custodian started, you know, at Formula Folios. I was like, hmm, maybe I should do this. You know, maybe I'm big enough. You know, maybe my own assets, four or five billion dollars in assets is big enough. But what I realized was that if I did it through a TAMP, you know, the turnkey asset management platform that Formula Folios was, it would very much alienate advisors that didn't want to fully outsource every single thing in their business, right? Like they didn't want to, because a, a TAMP by nature, like you're giving some company like InvestNet or Asset Mark or these big companies, right? And ultimately they are now the tech stack and they're the ones doing the diligence on your managers that are available and who, whatever other stuff they might do. And I felt like an open architecture solution was better. That way advisors could build whatever was, was best for them and their clients. So I made the tough decision. You know, I had a company that I built and was very successful and doing very well, I guess, from it. And I had to step down because it just didn't make sense to do it as part of a form of flu. So I, I resigned in 2018, I think July of 2018. Fortunately, this is just the nature of startups. I can say that if you've already done something well once, it's a hell of a lot easier to get money from other people to go do something again. Now, I had a lot of people always trying to buy you know, private equity firms, venture firms. I bootstrapped and fully owned formafolios. I, I didn't ever take any outside capital. But I had lots of friends I'd made that always wanted to give me some. So when I started a new company, I thought, hey, who's the best person I know, like the single best person I can think of that I'd want to partner with to launch this new sort of endeavor and see if they'd be along for the ride. So I called up uh, Nick Bein, who's a partner at Venrock. Venrock is the Rockefeller family's venture arm. They're a lot more than that now. They take outside LPs and a really, really cool group of people. And Nick is really exceptional. So I, I reached out to Nick, made a phone call. And obviously, he's, there's still an investment committee there. So I don't want to like oversell like that. Nick holds like all yielding power there. He certainly does. And he has a team that he works with. But he was incredibly excited about the idea. So there was no pitch deck. There was no co-founders. It was just like me. Had this idea. I pitched Nick and Venrock. They were very supportive. Within weeks, we raised $8.5 million based on just an idea in my head. Of course, eventually, I built a pitch deck and formulated the plan. First person I hired was my former head of design at Formula Folios because I wanted to kind of like take all these ideas in my head and turn them into like some type of visualization and brand. And so employee number one was John Siena, who's an absolutely brilliant brand design thinker. And we got to work on what was Altruist going to be. It didn't really start taking shape until early 2019. That's when we like kind of had the founding team in place. So those first few months, it was just recruiting like incredibly talented people in product engineering, compliance to kind of partner with John and I. And we started writing the first lines of code in late January, 2019. Kudos to your design guy. He's clearly talented because all the flow and design of it is pretty great. Not to diminish your idea. <laughs> yeah. Now, listen, really stupid ideas with really great design look a lot less stupid. We happen to have a pretty good idea and then exceptional design thinkers. And you know, today, I think we have um, almost a dozen designers across product design, brand design, and they do UX research. I mean, it's a really well machine, but we're very much a design-led company. You know, if we have been from day one, obviously, with hiring my first person there. But I think that's important. You know, Our space, I mean, beyond all the technology, that's just brutal. Our industry is fugly, man. It's so bad. It's just painful to see logos of compasses and sailboats and like castles and whatever. Like there's all these things. It's, it's super cliche. And then the products that advisors have to use, like they, it's almost like you don't realize what kind of, I mean, maybe a forward question here, Meb, but what kind of car do you drive? Mind me asking. I was going to make a joke about having all three on our website, but it's just Manhattan Beach Pier, sadly. <laughs> I was like, maybe I wonder if the, like the sailboats, like there's some like a 1960s focus group where they're like, you know, the three images that work best is sailboats, 
a couple like reading a book with their kid and what's the third one but the one you see a lot on the advertising ads all the time is like people rock climbing it's always it's sailboat like there's people rock climbing and then it's like some quote about risk or something yeah i see the, the fisher ads these days he'll find somebody who's 50 and like holding a surfboard like looking out on the horizon you know when there's no break at all and you're like yeah that's <laughs> that was so fabricated and not realistic but you know hey look that's what you're trying to personify what car do i drive this is kind of a touchy question for me jason so th- thank for for bringing up a wound but when i had a, a child i had to give up my car because it didn't have kid seats. This was an old 1960s Land Cruiser. So my first car when I was 18 was a old brown boxy Land Cruiser. It was like 1983. It looked like the Jeep Cherokee body style. And so I got a 1960s one, but that's more like the small Jeep CJ40 body style. So it's FJ40. But the seats in the back went this way, which babies can't go in, obviously. I mean, I mean, they could in lots of places. They could in uh, Western Michigan and probably North Carolina, where I grew up partially, uh, not in LA. So I went electric. I got a Tesla, which I love. I'm so glad I didn't know this story. By the way, like I love the vintage cars myself. So I'm, I'm, I'm partial. I, I kind of do both. So I have, a, I have an old Jeep and then I have a Tesla, right? So until you've driven a Tesla, it's easy to dog on them. But like once you drive one, especially if you drive in LA, like, like yesterday I had to drive up to Van Nuys at 6 p.m. from Venice, which is basically like an extra warm day in hell, basically. And um but it's a lot more bearable when you just like double tap your gear shifter and you let the car drive you. But with our industry, like one of the things that's happened is that people don't even know. It's like everyone's still driving around in like, you know, a car that's like not fuel injected or something with no power steering. And it's like, they're like, what's the, what's the big problem? I don't see what the deal is. Like, there's no, there's nothing's wrong. You know, it's like, no, dude, like this is, it shouldn't be that way. And until they experience actual modern user experience, beautiful design that customers actually appreciate. It's hard for someone to take my word for it. But once they experience it, it's kind of like an aha moment. We're trying to at least give advisors this option for this modern experience. Design's a big part of that beyond obviously like the technical innovation. It's such a great analogy. I mean, look, there there's so many experiences in life once you try something and you're just like, oh my God, wait, this is what's this like? Why would I ever go back? But it's getting people to that doorway. I mean, so many people never get to it. I had a bad flashback, though. You just reminded me that in high school, when I had my Land Cruiser, the power steering went out and I was being a cheap bastard and wouldn't fix it. And it was like the most miserable experience driving for like six months. And then I fixed it. And I was like, well, if you're going to fix it, you should just fix it ahead of time. Because now I just drove for six months. Pain's a good motivator. Uh, but but I, I prefer that our industry not be stuck in that no power steering age for the next 20 years. So you've obviously been on, on the Vanguard. That's not a pun, given your, uh, your Vanguard involvement we can talk about later. But you've been on the forefront of the tech and advisor community. And so when you sat down, you're obviously mission-driven. Financial advisor is something that's close to your heart. And as an extension, the relationship with the incline and actually doing work that has a measurable impact. What were sort of the guiding principles? Obviously, you're like, look, we're just going to clean this up and deliver a better experience. But what else was like, this is what we're going to build into the product? Because I imagine as everyone listening who's ever built anything experiences, it it definitely changes after you start building it in a million different ways from feedback and everything else. But like, what are like the guiding principles? And this is only two years ago, by the way, when you guys started rolling the sucker out. Yeah. Anyone that's founding something, they should start with 
And there's like all these cliche things, right? Let's start with your why, right? But look, at this most simple form, have a mission, like something you stand for. So for us, actually, before we ever hired an employee, we created a mission. And the mission was, how can we make financial advice better, more affordable, and accessible to everybody? And if you mind that, like advice is different than access to products and trading, right? Like there's already lots of access to products and trading out there. We wanted advice, human financial advice, make it better, more affordable, accessible to everybody. So when we think about like building the product, so I'll just take a couple of seconds each one, right? So make advice better. Unfortunately, not all financial advisors are great at what they do. There's some planners who are really exceptional. I actually think the majority are, are quite excellent, but there's some bad actors. It gives the industry a little bit of a bad reputation. But what are the empirical things we could do, like build and sort of codify into the product that would help deliver better outcomes for everybody, regardless of if they had a lot of money or a little money? So examples that would be, let's do fractional for, for the entire platform, which no other custodian for financial advisors is doing today. There used to be one that did, but they got bought by Goldman Sachs and are being sunset. And so that's no longer. And the other was bought by E-Trade and that's now been sunset, right? So why are they sunsetting them, do you think? I mean, I can tell you exactly why. You know, but then I'd have to like, you know, delete this podcast and come to your house and have me show. Just kidding. Um, the short public, I think, version is that Morgan Stanley bought E-Trade not for their advisory business. They didn't care about it. So just it's a distraction to them. They're going to sunset it, get rid of those advisory relationships, and it's done. That was the former trust company of America, which was bought by E-Trade, which had fractional share trading. Now it's gone. Goldman bought Folio Institutional, another fractional share trading small custodian. I think the analogy I would give is that they bought the entire house because they liked the toaster in the kitchen. And now that they have the toaster, they're scrapping the house. So there was a little bit of tech that they had that they wanted that they could deploy across their wealth management division. And that was what they really were looking for, not RIA custody in the way that it was being delivered. So that's a great example of a very useful tool that will help make advice better because you have a lot less money in cash. For those who don't know, like the average account, I think at Schwab has like 16% or something in cash, basically earning no money and probably getting charged an advisory fee. These are not good things for people. They make your outcomes worse, not better. So how do we make them better? We want to make it easier for people to have ETF portfolios. Fractional shares does that. Used to be, by the way, one of the reasons the big custodians didn't want you to have fractional shares was because if you had like a monthly reoccurring deposit right, of 100 bucks, 200 bucks, and you wanted to invest it all, the easiest thing to do is to buy mutual because they could be bought fractional shares. They loved you buying mutual funds because they made so much money. And I know you know that industry incredibly well. The big custodians love their mutual funds. And people don't fully appreciate that. Mutual funds through the big financial advisor custodians is a huge portion of their business still. Tons of assets and tons of revenue. They charge a ton of money to the fund companies to even be distributed. So they make the acronym they all use is ROCA, Revenue on Client Assets. These custodians want to maximize revenue on client assets. That's like the total opposite of maximizing the return for the customer. Right, right. So fractional shares is one example of that, but there's a bunch more building in automatic tax loss harvesting tools and tax location tools. So that, again, regardless of what investment strategy you, you deploy, how you deploy it matters a lot. Like it can generate over 200 basis points of better return just by being tax efficient. None of the other custodians have those tools built in. They make your advisor go buy some other solution, try to handle integration. Consequently, unless you have a big firm, you probably don't have those sophisticated trading tools, and therefore your clients are just losing out on these returns, right? So that's a great example of making advice better. 
making it more affordable for us was just how do we codify and systematize everything? Like a big part of why financial advisors are expensive, right? Their fees are high. Like there's just a report I saw yesterday that said like the average advisory fee charged by a financial advisor is still close to 1%, even though everything else has come way down, right? All the product companies had to drop the cost of their funds and their ETFs, commissions have went away. There's so many other things, but financial advisors that charge AUM fees are largely the same they were 20 years ago. And it's not because they're greedy. It's because their cogs, their cost of acquiring clients is pretty high. Somebody's got to pay for it, right? It's the customer. So we, we built, built a product that's in, incredibly affordable. You know, So much like a lot of the consumer apps, advisors can use it. It's, it's free for their first 100 accounts. So if they're early stage, they're saving tens of... I mean, it's like... Again, 90% is no joke. It's like huge, massive drop in their cost of like launching a firm. And the interesting thing is that combination of that high efficiency, the bettering of advice and the efficiency gains, which makes for lower costs, delivers on the third part of the mission, make advice accessible. I think, you know, a lot of advisors, they'd love to serve more customers. It's just, there's only so much time in a day. So if you're kind of maxed out at hundred families, you can really properly care for what if there were ways you could serve 500 families and it actually was easier and you delivered better outcomes because we just made everything 10 times more efficient, account opening 10 times faster, funding 10 times faster, fully automate trading, rebalancing, fee billing, performance reporting. So, you know, for anyone who's a listener, is a non-financial advisor, this stuff is like probably boring it is I'll get out. But if you're a financial advisor, we get it. This is the pain that we all have to deal with. So if we deliver on that mission, like it helps guide the product roadmap pretty heavily because it ends up resulting in a lot more advisors serving a lot more clients and giving them a lot better outcomes. Yeah. Our industry is so littered with just legacy ways of doing business. I mean, you referenced the mutual fund platforms at, I think Schwab makes over a billion on one source last I checked, but I remember looking at in the early days and it was like a couple hundred grand to just onboard it. It was like 40 basis points fee or something to like, revenue share. And I was like, most ETFs don't even have a 40 basis point fee. How is this going to exist 10, 20 years from now? And probably won't. But what do you think like were the, the biggest unlocks? And like, so, all right, so give us kind of walk, walk forward a couple years. I assume you got a number of advisors on the platform. How has it sort of changed in the last year or two as you guys say, oh, we got to iterate. People really love this feature. This has been a huge pain point, what's kind of where you envisioned it and where it is now in 2021? Yeah. So we we released in beta in May of 2020. So we let about 30 advisors use the platform for about six months just to help us learn how they were using it. So there wasn't a whole lot of dollars on the platforms, like maybe 30, 40 million dollars, you know, across these these sort of test advisors. But we learned a ton and then we released the product fully in November. So it's been almost exactly a year, you know, November 15 of uh, last year. At that point, we built a lot of buzz, actually. It was pretty kind of you know, surreal. Like we had a pretty large number, I think like five, 600 RIA firms that were on the wait list and represented multiple hundreds of billions of dollars in assets. So there, at minimum, we knew there was a lot of curiosity. I wouldn't call that like product market fit yet. Just like a lot of people very interested and intrigued. And when we opened up, then we got to see how much real fit, like real fits can be measured by the actual accounts start getting opened and dollars flowed here and people switching the way they do business. And that's been one of the coolest things to watch throughout 2021 is we've seen now firms fully 100% adopt Altruist as the only platform they use. They don't have to have anything other than maybe CRM and a financial planning app besides Altruist. And 
So things are, are going great from that perspective. There's about a thousand firms now on the platform. And again, I can't share all the de- details because you know, then I'd be giving away too much, but I can say that we've grown faster than any fintech company in the history of fintech by like orders of magnitude. So if you took every single robo-advisor that's ever been built, combine them, not including Schwab and Vanguard, right? Like I was gonna say you combine them, then you have Vanguard. <laughs> yeah. But if you took like Betterment, Wealthfront, you know, personal capital, Acorn, Stash, blah, 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 and one, take them all, combine them, add in Robinhood to the mix, combine that, which by the way, Robinhood's like 10x bigger than all of them after their first year. Like they were so much, they grew so much faster than every robo platform. But if we took all of them, Robinhood included, and combined them all, they maybe would equal what we did in our first year. So we're pretty stoked on that. Obviously, our investors are, are very excited about that. And it validates that was that market fit moment where it's like, okay, People drove the Tesla, they liked it. Now we're iterating, we're creating new features. But what's interesting is like all we did actually in the first year is we didn't really invent anything. I'd say we divided our product into five key categories. So it was account opening, account funding, trading, reporting, and billing. These are five things that have been being done for a long time, like decades. The problem is they all were so bad that we thought, hey, let's do those five things and we'll measure our CSAT, our customer satisfaction rating on these. And kind of like, how do we compare? And we thought, you know, if we could get all of those things to like eight and a half or nines or better on a scale of one to 10, to where we were basically the industry leader, there was no one who could do it better. Account opening, account funding, trading and rebalancing, right? Fee billing and reporting. I'm all rolled up into, in our case, one platform. You don't have to go to separate places. You just do it all in one spot. And we're still the best in the business with those five core things. That's a good place to start. So that's what we spent a lot of our first year doing. Our last, actually, you know, we built a, built for a year and a half, and then even this first year iterating on those five things. As we go forward, it gets a lot more about innovation, like real innovation. Like how can we take now that we have like some significant large number of users and data, we can take that data and do some really interesting things with it that help augment the ability for an advisor to just deliver better outcomes for their clients. So lots of things on the horizon that'll be sort of like industry first, but. People forget that like a great recipe for building a really significant company doesn't mean you have to like invent everything. Trailblazers end up face down with arrows in their backs for a reason. We just found that a lot of the ways that people were doing things, nobody liked. So this is doing way better. And, and then from here, I think there's again, lots of opportunities to apply machine learning to take that data and give advisors almost like an unfair advantage that they've never had before so that they can give their clients these outcomes and experiences that they've never had before with a financial advisor. We'll get to the previews in a minute to the willing extent you're willing to talk about any of them. But tell us the monetization. You said first 100 are free, which is cool. I wonder how many people just have 99 clients and just kind of <laughs> chill out at 99. So how do you guys make money? Is it similar to the traditional custodians? Is it different? How are you different? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of similarities, I think. So it's interesting, you know, no one talked about this stuff until the last couple of years. The funniest part was, I remember writing like blog posts like way before when things went commission-free and just being like, commissions are the biggest smoke and mirrors from these custodians because, you know, it used to be right if you bought a whatever, an ETF, let's say at name your broker, right? It was going to be whatever, six, seven, eight bucks a trade. And everybody believed that's what the cost was. It's like, that wasn't the cost. If someone obviously read like a quarterly earnings report from one of the public companies, they'd be like, yeah, transactions were like you know 15% or less of the revenue. They made all their money on stuff like credit interest, carry interest, rev share, 12.1 fees, meaning rev share. 
payment for order flow, securities lending, margin, right? So there's all these ways brokers for save money, but they didn't want to kind of have to explain all that. That felt dirty. So the easier solution was let's just tell people it's 40 bucks you know, to buy a mutual fund and seven bucks to buy an ETF or stock. When that went away and Robinhood really led the charge there, I mean, people started asking questions. And now all of a sudden, like nobody in our industry even knew what PFOF was, you know, until like they started getting talked about. And now people are like, oh, they're selling your information. You're the product, right? It's like, look, you've, they've always been doing this. You've done a very good job of being transparent and also being, I think, pretty data-driven on describing a lot of the different ways these companies do it. And there's a lot of misinformation. One, because again, it wasn't a topic people were aware of or cared about because many weren't aware of it at all. Some of it sounds nefarious, but isn't. Some of it sounds totally not a big deal, but is a big deal. And so there's a lot of, <laughs> it's a lot of complexity. So keep going. You want to walk us through kind of like... Yeah, I'll give you the, the short version. So our platform, I think of it as a vertically integrated solution. We have to keep in mind in the past, a financial advisor would go get a custodian. And then the custodian really just like held the accounts and handled the transactions. But an advisor couldn't do business out of the box with custodian. They had to then go find a software platform to do things like performance reporting. Like it's it's the craziest thing. People would never believe me if I was like, do you know that if you work with your custodian and you call up your advisor and we're like, hey, how did I do last year? The advisor can't tell you that because the custodian doesn't tell you your returns. Like you have to buy another software package. And and it's weird, right? Like you have to get like a data download. And these are old flat files. Dude, we used to use whatever the advent of like five advent, not Black Yeah, Diamond. Portfolio Center or something like that. It used to be for the GIPS auditing. And it used to be like the most mind-numbingly impossible software to work with. And it's weird that A, and maybe this is a softball question, I don't know, but it's weird that it's not legislated to where people are like, you need to give these customers almost like the, you know, the labels on the back of a, which whatever, <laughs> exactly. or on the back of foods, like here, it's standardized. This is what it is. Here's your report. And maybe it's going that way, but it's our world is so full of jargon. It's like impossible to even create the performance you wanted to. But like you mentioned, like most, most brokerages, you talk to people, they're like, I don't like how you do like, I don't know. Like it beats me. Exactly. And it's funny because like the regulators, they do try to create transparency. And then it, then by the time it like hits the consumer, like the end client, it becomes the form CRS or the form ADV part 2B. And people are like, oh yeah, this is the simple brochure. It's like, no man, that thing's might as well be in fucking Greek. Nobody yeah. can understand yeah. that. Nobody's going to read that. Like, so this is regulation that creates all this additional workload and expense. It doesn't actually benefit anybody. It's a real, real shame, of course. So to simplify our revenue, we have a software element of our business because there's integrated software. That's what the dollar per account per month is after 100 free accounts. So that's the SaaS fee. It's paid by the financial advisor. To answer your question, do people stop at 99? It's a per account fee, not a per household fee. So look, if someone had 100 clients, they probably have 250 accounts and they're probably paying us $150 a month. If they were doing that exact same thing at like, you know, insert the name of a portfolio accounting system, you know, whatever people call them these days, they're probably paying 15 to 25,000 instead, right? So they go from like, let's call it that 20,000-ish range down to 1,800 bucks a year. It's a pretty big save. That's our software side of the business. We're obviously a brokerage firm. So the custody brokerage part, like people open accounts, do trades. We make money similar to other firms, but there's a few things we don't do. So like all that nefarious bullshit around 12B1s, we don't play that game. Like if people want to buy DFA funds or Vanguard funds or whatever the hell they want to buy, 
Like we're not going to penalize you, make you pay a commission to buy a fund because that fund company is unwilling to give us a rev share deal. So everything's just, you buy what you want to buy. We don't care actually. And that gives the advisor the real opportunity to do whatever's in the best interest of their clients. In the past, you know, advisors, and they still do this with big custodians. They have to be like, well, you know, for my small accounts, I'm going to do this because like it kind of makes the most sense when I massage all the numbers. And then for my medium-sized accounts, I'm going to do like this other strategy. And then my largest accounts, it's like, we need to get rid of that and create systemization. Vanguard has done a great job in breaking down those walls because in so many instances, these platforms try to reach out to Vanguard and say, here's our toll. You know, we're, this is what we charge at Vanguard. It's like pound sand, like we're not paying that. And then it creates all sorts of, I mean, it's a net benefit no matter what, but it creates so many issues with these platforms with other companies, I imagine, because the companies that do pay it all of a sudden are like, well, why are we paying this in Vanguard? You know, and on and on. Anyway, I love Vanguard, but Look, if you can flex like Vanguard can, then God bless you. But obviously, most fund companies can't. They need that distribution. And the thing that we have to keep in mind about the Vanguards of the world is that probably half or more of their business, they don't need the custodians for. Like it's direct consumer. They have a very strong consumer brand. But if you're like American Century or something like that, nobody's ever heard of you, actually. Even though you manage billions and billions of dollars, like you need distribution. And that means you need custodians, right? You need Pershing through the broker dealers, you need the warehouses, you need the independents, right? Like so it's it's a convoluted kind of setup, right? But in our case, we make money on things like cash balance. But again, we make less than others because we offer fractional shares so people can be fully invested. We built a rebalancing tool automatically into our product. It's got event-based rebalancing. What that means in lay speak is if you put a hundred bucks into your account, it just gets invested instead of going to cash and then us earning like extra interest. So we do make money there, but we're obviously compressing our own ROCA so that the customer can get more of it. So it's better for the advisor and their clients. Like that's if you're a fiduciary, I don't understand actually how advisors can with a straight face be like, yeah, no, I work with this like major big custodian and it's best for my clients. But it's like it is absolutely 100 percent totally not in the best interest of your clients and you don't care. And yet you're holding yourself out as this fiduciary, right? Who's like, you know, holier than that. So we should start to understand how these companies make money and we should find like, are there better solutions? I mean, we might be one of those, but hopefully there'll be others too. And then lastly, like we do offer model portfolios. So I'm actually really excited for like a Cambria model portfolio someday when you're ready to fire that up with us. But basically what we've learned is that even though our platform's open architecture, an advisor can build their own models, they can use individual securities, um, like direct indexing is very easy on our platform, like all these kind of things that are now happening. But at the end of the day, a big chunk of financial planners are financial planners. They're not asset managers. And they just want to be able to plug into a risk-appropriate, tax-appropriate portfolio built by money management experts. So we want to make sure we added that to make it really easy. If you want to go and, again, either pick your favorite institutional asset manager or a strategist to be multi-manager, that's available. And we charge really low fees, like anywhere from 0 to 12 basis points. So if someone does want to outsource asset management, make it kind of robo-like, very easy to do that. So you can see like three different types of revenue. All of them are way lower than what they would be if they were piecemeal. That's the power of vertical integration. Look, it's not the same. I don't want to say we're Amazon, but it's not dissimilar. Like why can Amazon win? It's because they can afford to make nothing on huge chunks of their business because they make so much on Prime, right? Or something else like AWS. So in our space, if we can, instead of like live in a world where everything's fragmented and every one of those companies wants to have... If they're a software company and they're operating on less than 80% gross margins, they're a really shitty software company. But if you have seven vendors all making 80% margin on you, 
you're definitely getting screwed. But the advisors just, you know, they've never known anything different. And so that's just what we come to accept. And that's not okay. The software companies need to lean up. It shouldn't be about integration. It should be about consolidation, vertical integration, meaning like consolidation under one roof. This is how we deliver better, lower costs, more seamless experiences, et cetera. So that's the rev model, if you will, for altruists. It's nothing that innovative other than the fact that it's not been done in our industry. It's being done everywhere else at scale and really effectively. Our industry just needs to have this I don't want to like say like human advisors are going to be out of business in 20 years. I mean, I think that's totally lip service, but I do think that like, it's going to be a lot different, you know, and if people don't change, like they're going to be in for a world of hurt. So like we might as well embrace some of that change, get out in front of it. And that's a lot of what is driving our rep model. There's obviously the experience. And when it comes to cost, I think what most people care about, they prefer people to be honest and transparent. What they really care about is that you're just not totally screwing them. And when I say that, there's the formulaic or monetary amount that it is, but it's also the intent. And so a good example, like there's there's plenty of, of groups out there that do whatever they may do. But I remember when Schwab rolled out their robo-advisor. Intelligent portfolios. Intelligent portfolios. And I thought, you know, it was actually everything was decently well done. It was kind of nice interface. The onboarding was, was still like in the 90s. But... But they they opted in not in a transparent way, like the default cash allocations, which people picked up on immediately. But some of the cash allocations were like half and there was a minimum of like a quarter, but they didn't pay you a market clearing rate on that. And I said, why would they do this? Why wouldn't they just not do that, but put you in a Schwab ETF that's a money market fund and just be open about it? Like you didn't have to do this shady thing, but you chose to for no reason. I think they're going to get fined for it, by the way, is my personal take on this. I thought they already did. I thought it was like 200 million or something. Well, I I, I didn't know they, they set aside some money. I don't know if it was clear what it was for, if it was disclosed. Maybe it was. I saw the same thing. So maybe, which is a lot, by the way. But I was like, I, I don't know, like you can call yourself a fiduciary or, or like doing the right thing if you like intentionally make this decision. And it's not even like a huge decision moneymaker. It was just kind of like I, the way I describe it and like everything I talk about on Twitter and elsewhere. I'm like one of the first rules of life, just like, don't be a dick. Like you don't, you don't <laughs> have to anyway. Like, and this sounds self-righteous or whatever, but, it, but it's like, just kind of be open and clear about it. And then like people I think are fine with that. Like if you tell them kind of what you're doing and why, and look, you obviously need to be in business and this is what we're our approach, but it goes back to that element of like, trust fiduciary is this person looking out for my best interest which i think is the number one consideration like is this a fair amount sure but like are they just going to totally hose me when they get the chance to yeah not going to be but i think there's a there's a survey out every year that's why do people fire an advisor and it's never it's it's rarely because like oh they they charged me an extra quarter of a percent like that's like doesn't even show up on the survey right it's almost always like I didn't feel like they valued me. I didn't hear from them enough, right? Like most people, if they're hiring an advisor, they just want to know, like, and trust that person. All that being said, I think a lot of the time, certainly historically, a lot of people haven't paid a ton of attention to performance as a decision-making factor. These younger generations, I suspect might, they have a very different abstract on what should I be getting from an advisor? And it's not just like, oh, I like this person. They're cool and chill. Like they seem to be fair. You know, I think there's like that sort of like hyper awareness of details does exist more because they grew up in an era where like everything was at their fingertips. 
we'll see as time unfolds. But I do think that it's never a bad idea, one, to not be a dick, but two, like just to do what's right for people. You know, So if there's a way you can give someone an extra half a percent in return, it doesn't cost you anything to do it. Like, why would you not do that? Like that makes you know all the sense in the world. But there's a lot of people who it's kind of inconvenient. It's inconvenient to move my account from like one custodian to another. It might take me like, you know, 30 minutes of my day. And therefore I'm okay with my client earning a half percent less, which, you know, rolled up over the next 20 years might cost them half a million dollars, but I'm too busy right now. That's not okay. When it comes to money, there's so much inertia too. It's like people just hang out where they are. And that's why our old phrase, I think we've stolen from Josh Brown, who may have someone else, but the concept of mutual fund salad, where people own like hundreds of mutual funds across their clients, just because they bought them. They're like, well, I'm not going to sell them. What applies to a lot in life. And it's the same thing with money. Like if it's sitting somewhere now, the, the, the big difference I think is, is once it moves, it doesn't go back to the S&P 500 index fund that charges 2%. It doesn't go back to like a shitty experience where someone hosed you over. So as you've seen over the past decade, everyone knows this, the move toward lower fee funds, tax efficient funds. That's been a sort of a one-way trend and and going to a better experience and ideally in my mind, like a fiduciary one. Let's talk about the financial advisory space. As you talk to all these advisors, you're onboarding with modern problems and modern sort of wants. And we look to the horizon for altruist. What's out there? You're a keen observer of the space for many years. As you look to the future, what are some of your thoughts Predictions, ideas, concerns, previews. <laughs> sure. I've never been short of like opinions, I guess, but I do think some more like I'll call them like evidence-based observations. So we only serve the registered investment advisor channel. And there's lots of channels, obviously, of advice. And we chose that for a number of reasons. One is I do believe that people want to take their fiduciary standard seriously. So if you're gonna do that, this is a great space to be in. So we have no intention to change that. Like just, we always want to be in this RA channel. It just so happens it's also a very fast growing channel. There's seven and a half trillion or so of assets now just held by the wealth manager side. That's not including all the asset managers, which of course, like that number 10 times that or more, you know, if you include all the asset manager kind of RA firms, but just the you know wealth manager folks that are using the traditional custodians there. It's a big market. It's growing pretty fast, you know, so it's got a nice mid-teens growth rate. There's a lot of organic growth. So it's not just like new entrance to the space. It's the existing advisors just opening new accounts on a regular basis. So we're pretty excited to stay in that lane. And really, even the sub-segment that we serve really, really, really well are what we call emerging and scale-up advisors. You know, So basically, if you're in your first three years of your RIA, you're probably an emerging advisor unless you're breaking away from Merrill Lynch or something. You have like a lot of stuff on your plate. You're probably an owner-operator. You know, you're trying to figure out a lot of stuff that you have to do. So having all-in-one digitally-driven solution is pretty key to helping make sure you make it. Once people get to a certain level, they've made it. Now it's a matter of how quickly will they scale. And that's where the scale-up group starts. Um, we don't really look to serve enterprise customers. I mean, I think maybe someday we will. But if whatever creative planning comes calling and says, hey, we really want to use you for $100 billion, we have no interest actually in doing that right now. Like, I really believe in supporting like the small business entrepreneur financial advisor, which I actually think is the future of the space. When I look at like the people that are your generation, Meb, and younger, they are, I think, very independent. They're very entrepreneurial-minded. They don't really want to go work for like grandpa's wealth management firm. 
And that's a beautiful thing because there's so many cool new firms that are being formed that really weren't. When I started my first RA, it was 2004, and there's like 3,700 in the whole country. And probably half of those were asset managers, you know, the RA divisions that ran funds and things like that. So there's very few wealth manager RIAs. Today, that number's probably 35 to 40,000 RIAs, of which I think around 30,000 or so are, again, non-asset manager. They're the wealth manager variety, financial planner variety of, of RIAs, and maybe a little bit more. So it's had a good long run of growth. I think we'll continue to see that. I think we'll see people leaving the wirehouses and the broker-dealer channels and, and kind of loving this RIA space. Alternative fee schedules are definitely happening. Like we see it because we built in an, a fee billing kind of module like within our platform. So we're seeing a lot more people embrace like flat fees, subscription fees, a very alternative view because serving the next generation of clients, they have a lot of like non-managed assets. And I know like you, like you have your farm, like you do a lot of private investing. I suspect one of the reasons you do that beyond like the capital appreciation opportunities is it's fucking interesting, right? Like investing is really boring if all you have is like 80 ETFs and you rebalance on an annual basis. Which is a good thing. Totally. Look, people should have all those things. I mean, I personally have them. I invest in startups. I invest in private funds. I invest in the regular capital markets. I mean, these next generations of investors, like they're just more interested. And that's why we see things like high rise and farm together. And like, there's just so many cool things that people can do. But as a planner, you've got to find a different way to serve those clients. I mean, obviously, there's this whole proliferation of digital assets. And so I think we're going to continue to see that. It's going to be harder and harder to deliver that kind of advice if you work at a wirehouse or something. If you work at UBS, like how do you really give someone good advice on like, hey, what are you doing with your crypto assets and your seven different farms that you own a fractional portion of on farm together and you know whatever other things that just might be interesting to you. I saw the thread yesterday from Brian Chesky um, at Airbnb. I 100% agree with him. Like this trend of people owning homes that they turn into experiences that they now are floating around living three months here and six months there. Like that's real. And, and these younger generations, they love that. They thrive on it. So advice has to change and the way we bill for it has to change. And so I think that's a trend that's going to continue. It'll take time because look, we still live in a Pareto's principle-driven world and 80% of all the liquid assets are still owned by 20% or so of the people. And the bulk of that 20% are over age 60. So it's going to take 20, 25 years, right? Before we maybe see this full cyclical change of like people's views on money and how it works. But it doesn't mean it's not going to happen. People won't live forever. So, like, you know, it's going to happen someday. So, I think that'll happen. An investor and friend and altruist and someone I love and respect a lot is uh, Ron Carson. And, but he and I could have like, we have like totally different views on how advice will look. I think he's in the camp that maybe 20 years from now, there's like a half dozen mega RIAs, almost like big regional RIAs. And everybody's affiliated with those because it'll be too hard to be small. If you're like sub 200 million or something in assets, like it'll just be too hard. Be complexities with regulations and infrastructure and, and also continuity. And there's a very good chance like a, a large chunk of assets does end up that way. It's actually already happening, obviously, like those mega firms. But I, I think that there's also going to be this totally very fiercely independent next generation of owners that are going to have very little interest in rolling up. Maybe when they're 60, right? And they're like, oh, I got to have a continuity plan of some kind. But like, we've got 20, 25, 30 years where I think there's going to be so much cool innovation happening from young people because they can. And that's like one of the cool things about fintech in general is that when done right, 
change um, access significantly. Like, and obviously, like our form of access we're providing is more people that have an interest in forming their own RIA and running it and growing it can do that using Altris than could have if they didn't. Because a lot of the big custodians, we don't have like a 50 or 100 million or 200 million, like they don't even care that you exist. So there's got to be tools, right, to help with the innovative next generation of practitioners. So those are all things I see kind of happening. I do think that direct indexing is real and it's going to get really big. And so I think people need to be thinking about that if they're in the asset management camp, right? All the fund managers, they got to find their ways to live in that direct indexing world. Not entirely, like it's going to take a long time. It's kind of like, you know, right? Like mutual funds aren't dead. There's still lots of money in mutual funds, right? So as cool as ETFs are, they haven't totally killed the mutual funds. The mutual funds are still going to be here in 20 or 30 years. So there's plenty of money to go around, but there'll be big opportunity created for for direct indexing. And uh, here's my unpopular take that might... You may have to edit this out if it like creates like so much trolling that, that you know you and I can't survive anymore. But I think there'll be a cataclysmic, brutal crash in crypto assets that just absolutely wipes out millions of people. I mean, just financially destroys them. And that's really sad. I hate that I think that. It's not that I don't think that it will last, but you know, again, I'm so I'm old enough to be cynical. And I was around, I got in this business in 1999. Great vintage, right before the peak. Yeah, yeah, vintage way of putting it. I just call myself old. But what we have to remember is that I remember all the young people at that point being like, this time it's different. It's okay to illustrate 25% annualized returns because there's plenty of funds that had 50, 60, 70%, 90% annualized returns at that point. I worked at Morgan Stanley at the time and I knew people at Morgan Stanley that were building financial plans and illustrating 20 plus percent returns for the retiree clients and then putting them in like heavy allocations to tech heavy funds, which were were plentiful at the time. And we all know how that played out, but it was bad. And it hurt a lot of people. There was a lot of people who were like multimillionaires in their 50s getting ready to retire. And then all of a sudden now they had 200,000. And they got so scared, they liquidated at the bottom and then they didn't get any of the recovery. You know, And it's just a sad thing to see that happen. So I actually, I hope I'm really optimistic for like what Web3 can do. I think the DeFi protocols are incredible, much like the dot-com revolution, the Web 1.0, there will be massive winners and there will be innovations that last forever. And unfortunately, there will be some big losers. And I I don't know what that's going to look like exactly, but I just... I say that largely because I think human financial advisors are going to be really, really important. It's been real easy to be a do-it-yourself or buy some stuff and run up a thousand percent return. But as life gets more complicated and you've got more to lose and you get burned a couple of times, like you're going to want to have somebody that you can call that helps you make smart choices with your money. Even if you do have a lot of independent views on how it should be done, we don't want anybody to be silly right, and get themselves in a bad spot. So that's my whatever seven-minute rant on the future of advice. I hope, I hope I'm at least half right. I did a thread last night. I couldn't help myself. You know, the U.S. stock market market cap weighted recently hit a valuation of 40, which is pretty rare, pretty lofty. Only happened once before, which was 99 and 2000. Now, the joke was like the first time it hit that, it proceeded to go up by another like a third or something before going nowhere for a decade. But I said, you know, this has only happened X amount of times in history and the average returns for the next 10 years, real returns are zero for the next 10 years. The real pain usually comes the next three to five years. But then I posted this and like, look, this is just stat. Like, it's not even me saying, then conclusion, do X, Y, Z. I just posted it. And you read all the responses and it's a great sentiment indicator because people are either like downright angry 
or they just don't they don't want the party to be over like and you can just sense it like they're like on and on about it anyway whatever to your point, I, I read that. I, I, I followed a lot of those same, the cape and again, the old man, like, you know, yelling at the cloud in me, I guess, right, is going, hey, this seems silly. But I do think that, look, there's so much additional money supplied today and there's a better than 0% chance, right, that this actually, this bubble extends, if it is a bubble, right? You know, you talked about how it went up another third, this could double again. But people forget that, like, if something doubles again and then goes down 90%, like, it's still painful as hell. <laughs> you yeah. Know, unless you sold at the top. Yeah. I mean, my, my takeaway ends up being on this, like, I was like, look towards the value stocks, look towards the foreign stuff, which is way cheaper. So if this continues on, but, but to your point, I mean, and that's the beauty to be a historian. The biggest bubble we've ever seen was Japan, which hit almost 100. So theoretically, yes, it could double from here and still be within the realm of what has happened in the past. I think there's only been two times in history where a country's PE ratio got above 60 at year end, which was like Japan, of course, and then like Malaysia. There was a handful of 50s, but we're in, we're in that sort of nosebleed territory. My whole point was there was never an instance of those 50-ish observations where you hit average return expectations. Not one out of 50. Now, so the odds just aren't great, whatever. Things can always be different. Things can always change. Totally, yeah. I almost expect them to be, right? I don't want to be the last one dancing when the music's off. So to me, I think everyone should find their happy place, right? And then they go there. It'll be interesting you know, to see how that plays out. And I think that a little bit of human advice won't be hurtful. And unfortunately, you know, we tend to learn. Again, I got in this business so long ago that I did meet a couple people who they were kids during the Great Depression. It's amazing how like... 60 plus years later, they were still like, I don't trust the banks. I don't trust the stock market. The, I'm buying gold bars and cash under the pillow or you know, bird and tin can in the backyard. I mean, everyone has some wounds, you know, that like they remember and it kind of shapes how they, they invest. And I happened to get in the business and I got to live through the dot-com bubble bursting and the financial crisis. And so I, I just feel like I got like a little bit too much scar tissue. There's a good chunk of investors today, you know, that, you know, the last dozen years or so, don't have any of that type of scar tissue yet, right? They still have, you know, life is what it is, but there's um, lessons that we only can learn by experience and a good chunk of people haven't had those. And then some people just have like short attention spans, right? Where it's like, they kind of forget like, oh yeah, a guy lost my ass in 2008 and I lost my ass in 2000, but like, I'm cool riding this one out. Like it's going to not, it won't go bad this time around. And hopefully, as you mentioned, you know, most financial advisors, I think the vast majority are well-intentioned and the majority are also well-intentioned and intelligent and thoughtful. So they want to do the right thing and they do the right thing. Almost all of them want to do the right thing. Some may, may not know what the right thing is, but I put them in the in the right category. A big challenge, and, and I'd love to hear you talk on this. I think a lot of people struggle on the end investor with the discovery where they say, all right, well, I realize I probably need an advisor. How do I find one? And historically, like the way you find your, your local pediatrician, like you ask some friends, who's got a good one? What do you recommend? There's been some relaxation of the advisor kind of testimonial and discussions from someone who's probably a lot more close to this than I am. And maybe this is a business idea. I'd love to fund it. How come there hasn't been a bigger development of like almost like a ZocDoc for advisors or Yelp for advisors? I know there's a couple sites historically that kind of did some stuff. What's the lay of the land there? Like if somebody came up to you and was like, Jason, I need an advisor, what you got? So what's interesting is that 
Unfortunately, this is like an area where I think the bad actors are going to really jack it up for everyone else. So I've already seen a few marketing organizations that focus on insurance agents that sell a lot of annuities, but they call themselves like retirement planners or something, that they're building entire divisions to help advisors like get like incredible Google reviews and build up a Yelp profile with all these customer reviews and testimonials. But I don't know that I want to hire those advisors, right? I mean, like that's not what I'm looking for, but maybe for some. So there's going to be some tough spots, I think. The other thing that's really challenging, I love the ZocDoc, I was going to say, and then you did. There's a lot of value in like an independent source of this information. The testimonials I read on an advisor's website, I kind of take with a grain of salt, but like the testimonials I might read on like ZocDoc, which is from thousands of patients, I probably care a little bit more about. I think Yelp is losing its luster a fair bit over the last couple of years. Google reviews is interesting because of how they can embed it into search, you know, which makes it really hard to compete with. So I promise everybody, we didn't seed this question of MEBS, but like this is actually part of Altruist's mission, right? Make advice more accessible. When we thought about that, we thought we're in a really unique position where we can collect real customer testimonials and that are verified real customers. So in our digital account onboarding experience, it'll happen sometime next year in 2022, where we will give the client an option to let us know, like, how was the experience? What was the experience like, this onboarding experience? We can even embed like a 90-day or a six-month delay, you know, sort of like an NPS. Hey, like it's been 90 days since you started. How's it been going? Just an email, one click, you know, NPS score. Redirect them to a page. Hey, based on your feedback, we'd love for you to share your experience by writing the short testimonial. So we think we're in a unique situation where we'll be able to collect the largest collection of verified consumer reviews that cannot be challenged, if you will, by the advisor or embedded. Like the only way someone could actually leave that is they would have to have actually opened a real account and have been served up that NPS touch and survey and response. I think that in a lot of ways, when we think about the future of Ultras, we think that it won't be crazy to slimmer to Airbnb where people forget that behind the scenes, the stuff that a homeowner or property owner has, the tools Airbnb's built for them to effectively manage their property and promote it are really great tools. But most of us don't think of it like that. We think of it as just a marketplace, right? We go there and we put in our filters, what we're looking for. We find a place and we read the reviews, we check the availability and the price, and we find the solution that's a good fit for us. So I think beyond just reviews, there's a really big opportunity to can kind of codify a better way to find a good fit advisor, be able to see their actual historical reviews, like real reviews from real customers. There's a lot of problems with advisor matchmaking today. So there are people trying to do it and with no disrespect, although I think from Step Brothers that like you can't totally or maybe it was Talladega Knights. I don't know, one of them, right? You know, I said with no disrespect, but um I really dislike what's happening in that space. Like you basically have one incumbent player, I won't give a name, but their model is a arbitrage model, running a ton of ads, building a ton of content to try to get people to, you know, hey, use this survey to find a great advisor. But the reality is you're just being sold, right? Like, like they're acquiring you that lead for two, 300 bucks. They're selling it to one to three other advisors for like whatever, a thousand plus. They've got a super quick payback so they can keep the machine, the machine just running like crazy, right? Like the lead gen, like wheel spinning. So they can outspend almost everybody because their payback is so fast because they sell these leads off like as fast as they get them, basically. There's other players coming in that they're trying to take the approach of, well, we're going to vet the advisors more, make it easier for consumers to find them. But now we're going to charge 20 basis points, you know, forever, for life or for five years or seven years or something. 
that's an extraordinarily high CAC. If you think about like, I just acquired a million dollar account and I'm going to pay $2,000 a year for like whatever the next 10 years, including market growth and contributions. I mean, wow, is that expensive? And if we're thinking about like, how can we get better results for customers? That is an exact wrong way to get a better result for customers to start off with like a 20 basis point handicap on that customer relationship. So there's a lot of issues with the tools out there today. There's absolutely a need and demand for like, how do you find like one that is trustworthy and makes sense. And so, yeah, we've been hard at work actually behind the scenes and more info will come about it. I've teased it a little bit here and there, but I think it's really important that custodians historically have given referrals, but they only give referrals to their biggest customers. So are you really going to get the best fit? No, like you're just going to get like referred to some firm that's got $10 billion with them. And hopefully it's a good fit. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. And they're going to charge you 25 basis points for life with an 8x trigger if you ever try to move that client to a different custodian. Meaning like, again, that same million dollar client, oh, I don't think this custodian is the best fit for my client anymore. But the custodian referred you. So now they're going to charge you $16,000 for that new client to move them somewhere else that's in the best interest of the, the client. So like so many things in financial advice, there's lots of problems. There's lots of embedded ways of doing things, like just the way it's been done. They're, they're integrated into whatever the ecosystem is, custodial referral, lead gen, again, arbitrage model. But interestingly, I don't know that a new startup, it would be hard right, to reach that scale. Like, I mean, you know, you invest in startups. Like if you start thinking about like, what does it make? You got to have like a big enough TAM to get like me interested anyway, and most other investors interested. And then you've got to have unit economics that aren't going to like completely break the bank and require hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars of acquisition. This is partly what killed even the robo-advisors is like the cost of acquiring the customer directly is disproportionately high relative to the revenue that they're earning. You can't have a five or seven year payback. It's just way too capital intensive and investors are going to cap out your value. And that's why you see all these robo-advisors like if they're going public or you know being acquired by a SPAC, like their valuations are peaking out billion, two billion, two and a half billion. On the flip side, you have like Robinhood, right? And others, they're now, you know, whatever they are, depending on the day, but call them a 40, 50 billion dollar company. It's really just the unit economics. They have a better mousetrap to acquire customers relative to what they earn per customer, and they have more ability to cross-sell. So a standalone like lead gen you know, system or something that connects advisors and clients is tricky. I think it has to actually be bolted onto an integrated solution. Of course, I'm you know, selling my own book here, but I think we're in a unique position to be able to do that. And we can make it a lot easier for everyone to have access, right? So like, in other words, if we have 10,000 users, right, you have a lot more choice than if you have just 500, which is like what a lot of the demand gen systems are selling to. I mean, the verified account check mark is a big one. Like, it's just an actual experience. I mean, look, it's a hard problem. I'm glad you and others tackling it because I don't want to, but I would love to. I would love to invest in someone doing it. And I think it's a, someone will figure it out in the right way, meaning not necessarily just like, what's the most money we can make from this, but like, what's the actual right matching thing where the person, because a sustainable business will be the one that actually matches people with the right fit as opposed to just burning the lead for the most cost. What do you think about as we look to the, the future on the financial advisory model in general? You've had the robo-advisors, you've had the human-assisted robo-advisors, you have the traditional fee planners, wirehouses, and then a lot of people claiming that the per-hour model is all of a sudden going to take over the world. Do you have any beliefs about what the future holds for this business in general? Is it something where all of a sudden it's going to look like the legal profession in 10 years and no one's doing a fee model? Like, What are Jason's prognostications for what the future holds? 
here's like a non-scientific way of thinking about it. But in our employees at Altruist, like we have, I'd say a generally younger average age of a, of a team. Like let's just say that it's 30 years old or low, early 30s or something like that. It might be 40, but it's somewhere in the between 30 and 40, I would guess. And most of the people are well compensated because they work in the tech industry and you know, we're LA based. It's like not a low cost living market. Yeah, we're we're hiring and you guys keep hoovering up all the talent. I need a, I need <laughs> well, some people I mean, look, that want to move to the beach to come down. One of the biggest challenges is the fact that like Google and friggin' Amazon and there's like been a takeover of LA with all these streaming solutions of bigger tech companies. So there was a war for talent and talent won. It's expensive to get great people and they get equity, right? So if you're a startup employee, like early stage employee of Altruist, you're probably gonna make tens of millions of dollars or something, you know, and or a good chance of doing it anyway. So I say that all to say that these are great potential clients for financial advisors. Almost none of our employees have a financial advisor. Uh, in fact, when you think about who they use, we would just ask them, hey, like, who do you use? Like, What's your experience? I think the number one response was Wealthfront. That's the most common source of where do they go to get their planning? Like, They use the app so they can kind of connect their accounts, do a light version of like automated self-directed financial planning, plug into a portfolio with some tax loss harvesting and just let it run. And many of them are kind of like, why would anyone do anything different? Like it's a good value, it's a good experience. Like, you know, I had an advisor once, but it was horrible. And I heard from him twice a year. So yeah, there are some differences. I think like the industry is changing. Now, again, that's an LA microcosm non-scientific view. Where I'm from in West Michigan is quite the opposite. I don't think anyone's using a robo-advisor. <laughs> you know, like they're gonna go to the local credit union, they trust that person, they have mostly CDs and fixed annuities and maybe some like mutual funds or something. So depending on where we are in the country, it, it varies. The things I think that are definitely happening is. I think virtual advice is here to stay. Never let a good crisis go to waste. It accelerates the future in this case. I don't believe that that many people in the next couple of decades are going to be going into a mahogany trimmed boardroom to sit down with their advisor wearing a three-piece suit. Like That's just not that important to people anymore. And that's happening in all industry. Like We're seeing that with lawyers, CPAs, et cetera. Like, you know, it's just, just not that important to have that face-to-face local advisor. You just go get the best person that's the best fit wherever they are. And since everybody's getting very mobile and portable, like in their own lives, like their advisors and lawyers and CPAs will as well. I think it's already safe to say that the robo for advisor solutions is probably not going to work, right? Like I remember when robos came out, like there was a big rush of like, oh, let's build a robo. And there were advisors like, yeah, I want to put a link on my website that like someone can just click on and just like give me their money and have this robot do it all. And it just didn't work. Even the firms that had like, massive social media followings and email lists, and they still couldn't make it work. It just doesn't work. You're one or the other, and that's okay. Like I think people just embrace it. You're either a human financial advisor, you can use tech to augment your, your skill set, right? And do more for people, or you're building a, a direct consumer fintech company. Do one or the other. Don't try to do both. It's too, too hard. I do think the robos though, I mean, I think they're going to be an absolute force to be reckoned with. As you mentioned, so Vanguard is an investor and altruist, small investors, so they don't have any controlling interest or board vote or anything, but they're extraordinarily helpful. And we've learned a ton of things from them. Like, And they just have a wealth of knowledge. I respect that company and the people tremendously. Quick interjection. Vanguard is hilarious because like, depending on your perspective in the industry, they're either like Luke Skywalker, the Death Star, Obi-Wan... I have joked publicly, I said Vanguard, part of their user interface, I almost feel like it's intentionally outdated so that people won't interact with the platform and trade because <laughs> unlike some of the old stuff they have. So I also say name a, for a lot of the asset management world, I say name a startup of the past 20 years that claims to be disrupting the world. That's not just a Vanguard, but with higher fees. 
and it's actually really hard to come up with a <laughs> mini variants. It's funny. So we, we just did a, our video, our, our sort of vlog, you know, we call the human advisor. We just had an interview with Bill McNabb, the former chairman and CEO, and we flew out to Philly for that. When you're talking to him and a lot of the people that were there early, I mean, they're like, I can't think of, I was, I was like, I was like, what do you say? I'm like, to me, it's, that is the most innovative company in financial services in the last hundred years. Like who's done more to change the industry? I mean, before them, like people were paying eight and a half percent commissions to buy two and a half percent per year expense ratio mutual funds that underperformed you know, the benchmark by four percent a year. I mean, it's changed everything, and I think that's a good thing. And they've been surprisingly nimble. They got into the ETF game a lot easier. They could have like tried to not, but they didn't, and they became a major player very quickly. They spun up an advice business, and it's now the largest advice business in the uh, United States, and they're expanding that advice business globally. I mean. There's some really interesting things that people can learn, even though they're a big company, they do a lot of things right, have a lot of good people. But I think that when I look at like what's happening with their own advice division and knowing like how they're looking at their own resources, that's one of the areas that they're putting more resources into because they have the highest conviction that that is the biggest future of their business is actually this sort of like augmented part where they used to have a really... They still have a big, but like their 401k business was really successful. Bill is actually one of the people who built it. But a lot of those people are now needing personal advice and they don't want to lose those people to someone else. Like, let's keep it all in the family, so to speak. I don't know what Betterment's at nowadays. They're probably pretty close to 50 billion or so, I think, in assets. Wealthfront's probably in that ballpark too. It's hard to know how much of theirs is cash versus, you know, like managed accounts. But they're now big enough that if people believe in, in flywheels and they believe in these, I'd call them almost like exponential factors of growth, I mean, they're going to get real big really fast because they're kind of hitting a, a point where their customers are getting older, wealthier, they're depositing more money on a regular basis. And I think that their acquisition, although the cost, raw cost is high on new clients, like they're getting substantial amount of new business via referral. And there's a very much this sort of flywheel effect that I think we'll see at those companies. So advisors have to be uh, careful. Again, I, I don't think advisors can spin up their own robos. This is kind of doesn't work. It tried and it failed. That's why I think that it's like so critical that we deliver the same type of user experience. Like if we go into battle with like a wooden sword and like they've got a fucking bazooka, like they're going to annihilate us. So like let's like at least go, you know, and like while we do different things and serve different customers, like let's not have our customers have be you know, be the ones that have like the terrible like user experience, right? That don't even have like a mobile app to see the balance of their account or something. So there's lots that can be happening there. I mean, you said a lot, like, you know, do I think Everyone's going to be hourly fees. No, I just don't. I think there will definitely will be some people for sure, but it just doesn't scale. And that's the problem with it. There's a handful of people, right? I guess if you're like Rick Ferry, you're like never like, no, hourly fees is the way to go, right? Like, but it's definitely a minority. It might be growing some, but the challenge is that I don't know that we're ever going to see like a real national powerhouse built on hourly fees. Because again, like you run into some serious scale issues. We think about like what hyper growth companies look like that really do become new industry standards. They tend to have a few common elements. And one of those is they have extraordinarily capped LTV ratios. Hourly rate just doesn't work like that. It's impossible to grow at hyperscale because your LTV is just measured in hours, right? If you only spend five hours, like you cannot possibly generate increasing margins unless you just like hyper increase your hourly rate, you know, which again has a limit. So lots of problems with it. Let me introduce you to our lawyers uh, when <laughs> I can take the opposite side of that belief. Yeah. Yes and no. But think about like law firms. So I'll use my law firm. God bless. And you guys are great. Wilson Sensini. 
and they're, you know, eleven, twelve hundred dollars an hour. And yeah, like it's very, very expensive. But trust me, they're they're not trying to make their money off that that hourly rate. Like they want us to go public, and then that's going to be how they make their money. Um, there's there's a substantially larger amount of money like on that sort of, you know, whether it's M and A or IPO front. So until then, it's like the hourly rate is just there to provide the service up until you get point of exit. The other thing I'll say it's really interesting. The really big law firms that serve startups. They have their own funds internally where they invest in their companies that they actually represent. So they're looking at companies like us and other startups, and they're going, We realize that the hourly rate is not the best thing for us either. Like right? we can raise it only so high. We can try to get the large transactions, you know, that that create huge wealth. But where we were going to make the most possible money is when you have a liquidity event, a big liquidity event. And right, and we were there at the formation of the entity. So our strike price is like pennies or whatever, and they're turning it into billions. So I think advisors, again, if they're going to try to play the hourly game. It will work to a certain degree, but I think that will work a lot more like your local plumber than it's going to work like you're not going to become whatever Cooley or something, you know, by being a, a finance. You know, think about like how long does it take to become Cooley? These mega law firms have been around 100 years. So if you're an hourly planner, be prepared to be in it for a very, very long time before you build like a 50 partner mega firm that's serving tens of thousands of customers. I think a much more realistic outcome is that. They might become a very successful small business, and that's totally okay. Like, I, I, there's a Seth Godin quote I love, and uh, it's from one of his old one sentence blog posts. But is it's okay to stop when you're happy? So who cares if you want to do hourly? Do hourly and be happy. Like, there's nothing wrong with that. But I don't think the whole industry is going there. I think a segment will go there. You know, that will be a segment that serves a customer base. That is a segment that wants that. And there's always going to be like these other segments of customers that want something different, and that's okay. Yeah. You know, you mentioned the Betterment. I've been trying to wait for there to be any sort of bear market to pick up shares on the secondary market. And it just hasn't transpired yet. You should have done it a year or two ago. Well, you know, but like the second, it, yet last year was so quick, the COVID dip that the private markets, it didn't really feel like it had enough time to really react, it felt like, on the secondary stuff because I'm a cheap bastard. <laughs> I did the same with Robinhood, by the way. I, I was like, oh, I could have bought it, but I was like, $7 billion? That's ridiculous. Yeah, that's you know, crazy. Like, oh, I, I wish I would have done that. Man, look, this has been a masterclass on all things. I haven't even gotten to half my outline, so we'll do this again in person in the coming months. If there's an RA that wants to sign up, they mentioned the Meb Faber show, get ahead of the queue, jump part of the queue a little bit, Jason. Like, yeah, sure. Move. Why not? So first of all, we don't have a wait list anymore, but I would say any friend of Meb's would be a great altruist user. So we don't have a special link or promo code yet for the Meb show, but I would say there's always a spot to let us know where you heard about us. Like, please let us know. And you just go to altruist.com. Like, it's real straightforward. Every client that signs up, he's going to buy me a winter rye cocktail at Taste <laughs> at Jelena down the street. What's been your most memorable investment thus far? You've been a, a founder, but also an investor on a lot of different things, good, bad, in between. Anything really stick out? Yeah. I mean, so, so one thing, I mean, it's not an individual investment, but I, I became a, a venture partner in a fund called Matterscale Ventures. It sort of aligns with my personal values. So they invest in companies that matter and founders that scale is kind of like where the Matterscale name comes from. And it's a global fund. So it's a kind of a cool fund. The investments that they make because they focus a lot on emerging markets. I mean, they're getting into companies that if those companies were in the US, they'd be like a $500 million company already. And they're getting into one like $5 million pre's. Yeah. Well, no, it's funny because I agree. However, it seems in the last six months that the attention is starting to 
gravitate around the world with some of these big successes and, and funding rounds you're seeing in some of these emerging markets. But we'll wrap more on that later. Jason, it's been a blast. Where do people go? Best place. Find uh, you, your writings, what's going on. Yeah, man. I mean, look, if they want to like follow my ramblings, I'm just at Jason Wink on pretty much every social channel. Hit up altruist.com to learn about the business and how we're helping people invest better and lower their costs and make it accessible to everybody. So so thanks a ton for having me on, Meb. You're one of the best, man. And uh, this has been a ton of fun. Awesome, brother. It's been fun. Let's do it again. Absolutely. Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. If you love the show, if you hate it, shoot us feedback at themebfabershow.com. We love to read the reviews. Please review us on iTunes and subscribe to the show anywhere good podcasts are found. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. Good investing.